morning, church. Oh, you have to bear with me. Thanks to Indiana's crazy weather, my sinuses decided they were going to swell and dispense nonsense down my throat. And sore throat, and uh, my voice is fading quick. I made it through the songs almost. I only had a couple parts where notes didn't sound. But it is what it is. If I'm going to run out of voice, I may as well be here. Uh, we'll be in uh, Zechariah 5 and 6 today. Um, if you've been following along with us, um, this has now become a, a book of visions. That's not a bad thing by any stretch. Um, but today's visions, I think, are especially um, confusing on their face. I think when I say especially, given your, your uh, I'm just going to take a look at this point blank and and not think much about it, read one little chunk, the specific vision, and try to figure out what it means, it's going to be a real struggle. And that shouldn't be surprising to us because obviously these, these visions and books and letters and whatnot that comprise the Word of God were written the way they were written with intent. Um, so for us to look at it in the big picture of all of Zechariah, surprisingly, and I say that for myself, I was surprised pleasantly, at how cohesive these visions are, given how strange they are. Mike and I joke a lot of times when we get into these trickier books that you never really know. We don't plan out like, okay, I'll take three and four. And usually we just go two weeks at a time as schedules allow. Sometimes you have to call an audible if somebody's sick or whatever, and it is what it is. We preach them as they come up. Um, last week's vision, as Mike mentioned, was pretty straightforward, it seemed, right? I mean, we had lampstands. But if you're in our small group today, it would have been confusing, perhaps, because as we talk through these visions and you try to draw in more understanding of what the Bible talks about, the, the lack of clarity in these visions is somewhat welcome. We should be able to say comfortably, if it was something that was cut and dried, it would be given in a cut and dried manner. And there's tons of examples of that in the Word. So as, as we're going through this today, and I'm just saying it again for, to be said aloud, if you feel like, ah, I, don't, I, don't, I can't connect that dot, or I've heard differently, or in my study it was all swipe, great, uh, please share that with us, <laughs> um, because these, I think, are open to interpretation, and that is intentional. We're supposed to be working with the Holy Spirit to have these words mean something to us, not just studying them on our own. That said, let's go ahead and dive in, and we'll read through. We'll be in Zechariah 5 and 6, both books in their entirety, and then we'll dive in. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and it's width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely, falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Then the angel talked to me, came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, 
and they lifted up the basket between the earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered, and I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven, after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes towards the north country, the white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go towards the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch. For he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hin, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass, if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for these passages. We thank you for uh, as confusing as they might seem on their face, Lord. We thank you for a wealth of information throughout the whole of your word that really paints for us a picture of how you tell stories how you communicate truths, how you describe yourself, how you describe us. And when we come to these passages, Lord, where it's not so cut and dried and it's not so black and white, and it is open to interpretation, Lord, that we would not rely on our own understanding or even the understanding of well-meaning individuals in our life, Lord, but that we would rely on you. We can absolutely work together as iron sharpens iron. You, you tell us, you promise this too in your word, that we, we grow sharper as we work together to understand. But ultimately, Lord, we want to rely on you and your Holy Spirit when it comes to the matter of your word. It's in your son's name, I pray, amen. All right, so let's be honest, th these prophecies are just plain tough. This is me preaching to me a little bit here. With context and research, they do com convey clear messages. I believe this to be true. I would die on this hill. No question, the messages are clear. Without context and research, they make very little sense. I know I said it just a second ago in my prayer, but studying in the Spirit is critical for chapters like these. There are parts of the Bible that are, for God so loved the world, he sent his only son. Got it. Boom. Very, very clear what's going on there. We don't need to talk about the, the timing of the event and what it was life was like at those times. And in that culture, what did that mean? It's very clear to us. But I'll tell you, it's a double-edged sword because when we think it's very clear to us, we may fail to pray that the Spirit would come and make that word more meaningful to us because we think we've wrung every bit of meaning out of it. These passages are the exact opposite. They're not clear-cut. And it's an opportunity for us personally to open this back up and pray 
for the Holy Spirit to come and make a deeper understanding possible. And to that end, I know I've said it before, but please don't take our word for this. Mike and I are doing our honest best to divide the word rightly. But we covet prayers and questions regarding these things. Neither one of us is, is going to say, that's the answer. Do not ask me about it. Right? It's over. It's settled and done. Um, please take time to reread this and think and pray on it. And there's riches beyond measure. So please help yourself. <laughs> um, once again, preaching to me <laughs> as much as anything. So let's dive right in. <coughs> First vision, a flying scroll. Most likely this has the Ten Commandments written on it. There would have been five commandments on each side of the scroll. And we hear in the description that one side of the scroll is against thieves and the other side is against false witnesses. Uh, do not steal is three. And do not bear false witness is eight. That would put them right in the middle of the first five and on the other side, the second five. Makes sense. Do I know this to be true? I do not. But this would paint the picture of what this scroll contains. It could be as simple as the Ten Commandments. And this is a demonstration that's been used endlessly in our world, but it's apt that we all know that if you just go to that simple list of ten things, we have fallen short. Because if it's done in our heart, we've committed it. So these are alone are enough of a curse. It's very big in this vision. This would be the description 20 by 10 is roughly 13 by 15, 30 by 15 feet. So very large and even maybe 100 feet or whatever, you should be able to read it. This is something that would be evident from a distance. It doesn't require close scrutiny. It doesn't require you to move close to it. The intent for this in this vision is something that is very visible. It's evident to any that have eyes to see. And what does it mean? Well, the curse is the law that man has failed to uphold. If the Ten Commandments are on it, that's great. If they're not, that's fine. But the, 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 the meaning here would be the same. This scroll represents the law, the big, daunting law, the crushing, defeating law. It points out our, or it points out our shortcomings. So it points out our shortcomings and reminds us we require a Savior. Look at what God requires of you. It's evident what God requires of you. Will you be able to say that you've met these requirements? No. Short answer is no. That's its point. It will be everywhere. There's no escape. It says it goes into houses. And it says it will consume the house. This curse of law consumes it all. Uh, the way that it's described is, is, I guess, you know, kind of a, a bummer. It shall remain in his house and consume it both timber and stones. So basically, this scroll representing law will consume everything. Everything that we build, everything that we do will be consumed by law. All of it is built on, based on something that we are in violation of, right? The law will destroy us. It's, that is its intent, to show us how far away. Kind of dark. Kind of ends that first vision like, Ugh. well, what do we do? You're telling us there's a curse, there's a scroll. There's a, there's, once again, if you just looked at this passage and we said, okay, let's pray. Like, yikes, I don't know where we go from here. It seems pretty, pretty dismal. This is true. But a woman in a basket. <clears throat> nothing, you know, nothing turns a story around like a woman in a basket, right? The old saying. So we know that this woman is wickedness. It's capitalized with a W. And it's a definitely a proper noun or a name, that is her name, and she is trapped under a very heavy cover. 
For context, Israelites were notorious for cheating with false weights. The, the, the word that's used for, ba- that's translated to basket is epoph, and it basically means a measure of something, right? It would have been a common, like we might say a gallon. You wouldn't necessarily say there was a woman in a gallon, or he was trapped in a gallon. We would say a gallon jar or jug, but those words are kind of interchangeable. So God has big problems with this in the Old Testament a lot, but cheating one another in false measure is an issue, right? I, I uh, you know, shim the weights a little bit, and uh, you pay for uh, three pounds of whatever, and uh, it's really two and a half pounds, but, you know, the weights are misstamped, and, uh, or the measurement of the basket. I, 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 I pad the basket a little bit, so it looks like it's full, but it's not, it doesn't have the same amount in it. This was a real problem. And so the representation of this wickedness woman in this basket covered uh, is, is likely a subtle barb to the frustration that God has with the way the Israelites treat even one another in this regard. And this basket then is carried off by more women with stork wings. <coughs> There's some interesting things here. Number one, it says the, the wind is in their wings. In uh, verse 9, Zechariah 5, 9, I lifted my eyes and saw and behold two women. The wind was in their wings. Now, the representation here is that their wings are out, most likely, and the wind is blowing them in. They're not really uh, flapping and flying, per se. It's this idea of maybe they were gliding. That was the look. It's like a sail, but using wings. Stork is an interesting word choice here. As usual in the Word of God, when we see a word, it's worth thinking about what the word means. Storks were unclean animals. So what we have here is a picture of wickedness in a basket representing the wickedness of the Israelites, sealed with a weight that the angels put over to keep wickedness there. And then two women with the wings of unclean animals grab this basket, but the wind is in their wings, as if there's, it's God's wind that's blowing them away. God is doing the work here. But they are happy to do it. There you have the wings. And we see then it was taken to Shinar, which is Babylon, another word for that, and put into a place of honor. Now, the word doesn't say honor, so we could take that with a grain of salt. Um, but we see here that to the land of Shinar to build a house for it. <laughs> um, even in our world today, we don't do a lot of house building for people that we like. But if somebody were to build a house for somebody, that's, pretty, that's a very honorable thing to do. We tend not to build houses for our enemies. We tend not to, to put in a place of, of honor and respect something that we don't honor and respect. Uh, so the, the hint here in the vision is that these, in the land of Shinar, there's a house being built for this basket of iniquity filled with wickedness, carried off by women with unclean animal wings. But they're going to put it in a place of reverence once they've got their house built for it. And what does it mean? God's pouring out, out their iniquity even towards their He's pointing this out even towards their friends. So the basket reference is exactly, I know how you guys are doing weights and measures. It's one thing to lie and cheat and steal. That's bad. But when you do this inside the community, it's God's people hurting God's people. And that's really, really frustrating to God. But God will purge this iniquity from them in time. Harkening back to the very first vision, we saw this notion of the law has condemned you. It will consume you. It will kill you. Now what we see is a part of this law, your sin, 
your iniquity, your bad judgment, your wickedness, I will put it in a basket and have it flown away. I will take it away. But what's notable here, I think, is that once God's removed it from him, God's enemies will enshrine it. So the very thing that God has taken away from them, the burden, the curse of death, wickedness, inequity, Babylon's happy to build a temple for it. We're going to celebrate it. We like that mismeasurement. That's uh, entrepreneurship. That's scrupulous business making, right? We all do it, so that makes it okay. The world loves what God hates and vice versa. Next. Four chariots. Four chariots emerge from the two mountains. You'll think, why did he put the two mountains there? The Bible just says two mountains. Well, the actual like, uh, translation, if you dig in a bit, is the two mountains. So this most likely represents Israel. Two mountains, uh, very common. So we see four chariots emerging from two mountains. And we have red, black, white, and dappled horses. Dappled means a mix. Um, that one's a little bit more well understood than the prior. Th- and they are strong, it says. <coughs> we're told black and white head north and dapple head south. And we're also told that they were basically raring, ra- raring to go. Uh, and I don't take nothing here with a grain of salt. But it says, uh, when, the ho- when the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. It's noted that these horses were itching to get to work. Now, when they're loosed, the expectation is they're going to get to work, and they do. That's what we hear. Go, and he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrol the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. That, that then sounds pretty brief. They head out, and north country is fixed. The horses got to work. What does this mean? <clears throat> There's some familiarity here to Zechariah 1 where we talked about horses of uh, various colors with riders. And also Revelation 6, uh, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse kind of stuff, right? Um, there's debate on the colors. So I'll tell you that right now. Very, very learned individuals that have done a great deal of study have opinions. They're all opinions. We could debate them. There is no known fact as to what means, but this is my take. This is my take. Chris's take is red is war and judgment. It's very curious because we see four horses talked about. Red, black, white, dappled. But what's, what I find interesting is it says, uh, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves for the Lord of the earth. That's verse 5. Verse 6, the chair with the black horses goes towards the north, the white goes after them, and the dappled one goes towards the south. War is red. No mention of red. No mention of red. It's as if red didn't have anything to do or didn't go anywhere or went somewhere he didn't see. Who knows? My thinking is this. Red is war and judgment, right? Red oftentimes would, would relate to blood. But red is war and judgment. It leads the way. It's the first one we see mentioned. Where it went effectively was everywhere. Everywhere. Black is death and followed war. So uh, if, if it headed into the north country, if it headed south, wherever that horse went, we know black went north and followed judgment. That's why it was headed there. 
White typically represent life, and in this case, most likely follows death. This is an interesting scheme because where we see death go traditionally would be the end of things. Death is run through, and now everybody is dead. But the Jews, even at this time, were familiar with the concept of Passover. But there is a way that you can live even when death is passing by. So this is a sign of redemption for some. Yes, judgment has come. The wrath of God has come. That wrath has borne death to the north. This is usually Babylon that have been the, the kingdom in the north. But there will be some redemption for the people in the north. Some people will be spared. And the last horse is the dappled horse or the mixed. This would have been a, the, the description of the horse would have been spotted. So it could have had white with black spots or black with white spots. To me, this would be more of a lesser combination of all these prior horses. So when we talk about the judgment of the Lord and what, what he's getting at here is there will be some that will be judged very harshly as God seems fit. There will be others that will be judged in the same manner with the same outcome. The wages of sin are death. But some areas may not get the same degree of judgment, uh, maybe not as severe of a judgment on them uh, because more people repent. Who knows? Do I know definitively that this is true? I do not. Some people think the red represents martyrdom, which is why we don't see it mentioned anymore. The blood of those who are part of the church could well be. It's going to be a great question to ask God when we get to heaven. But what we do know is that colors are intended to represent something. And this idea is that these horses are coming out. Their design is to cover the earth. The four winds of heaven would be everywhere. But they set out to very specific areas in his vision. And you'd think he might say something after he'd heard how inquisitive it is. What does this mean? But he doesn't. <laughs> Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. And then immediately it's, and the word of the Lord came to me, onto the next vision. A crown and a temple. <coughs> so this is interesting in that it, as visions go, this changes more to a, a recipe in a vision form. He's told exactly what to do in this vision. There's things to do. Take gold and silver from very specific people. Heldai. Tobijah, Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go to the same day the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold. Make a crown, set it on the head of Joshua. So we're going to make a crown, we're going to put it on his head. And then remind, the next command here is, and say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts. So remind Joshua of the coming branch. You might say, is Joshua the branch here? Are they talking about a different branch? So the branch is capitalized, and that usually means that they're probably not talking to Joshua directly. That said, this is a vision. And there's tons of, 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 of interesting ways that God will communicate the truth of Christ by using examples or types of Christ long before that. So he's telling Joshua, hey, what you do is serve, is serve in the line of a much bigger purpose. A coming branch will be here. Now, when we talk about things like branches and trees, the, the beauty of this is if the eventual branch that is Christ that will come out of the root of David, then yes, Joshua is a branch in the tree 
that provides the eventual place for the capital B branch of Jesus to be born on this earth. So is Joshua a branch? Sure. Is every branch on a tree a branch? Yes. Are some branches more important than others? Yes. Right? But suffice to say, what we see here is Zechariah talking to Joshua as a reminder that there's a bigger play here. What we are going to do as we rebuild the temple as I crown you is not the end of the story. The reason we glorify and serve and, and, and want to do what God commands us to do is not just so we can check a box and be happy. There's a, there's a, 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 there's a motion, a long-term motion of God through time, and you're part of it, Joshua. <coughs> so what does it mean? Joshua will serve as a priest and rebuild the temple. No question about that, I don't think. We're going to crown him. He talks a great deal about you're going to be a priest. The priest is going to serve Christ, so on and so forth. But Joshua is also serving as a type of Christ. Now, I want to just clarify this a little bit. This doesn't mean that there's many Christs and multiple messiahs. That's not what this means. I put type in quotes for a reason. This is type as in like a, a font face or uh, something that looks like Christ. He is a type of Christ, a a hint at Christ, a shadow of Christ, a mimicry in some regards. But we see God using this technique of typology all throughout the Word, something that needs to imitate the Trinity. He might make a type of Trinity by the duality of Christ. The whole point of this is to help us understand that there are, when things are important and, and very central to who God is, we see God using that over and over and over and over. That means it's good. It's divine. Um, so the more we see it and study it, the better it is. In this case, what we see is the way that, in this case, they're anointing Joshua as priest is because God said to do it. Gold was taken from other people. It was turned into a crown. It was placed on his head. What did Joshua do? He did nothing. He sat and waited until the crown was brought to him. But yet Joshua has a responsibility now. He's part of something. He is pulled into the same concept, right? When we see what Christ's work culminated in here, what did he do to deserve the wrath of God? The answer, of course, nothing. It's the exact opposite. And what we see is our crowning of, uh, of, of Christ's crown aligning more with what, what Joshua was enduring here. But Joshua is reminded of what you do, your guidance now, your wearing of this crown, prepares you to eventually cast that crown down and put on a much more glorious crown in the future. Don't stop here. Joshua reminds his people during the rebuilding of his temple. He's there now to remind them that God is still here. God is still maintaining the priestly line. And Jesus Christ reminds his church during the missionary work until his second coming. What we do, and the reason we keep going, is because we know that there is a Christ, the Christ, that is sitting at the right hand of the Father that is crowned with glory now, waiting, tarrying, until the Father says go. The same reminder. So points to ponder. And these are the four points that we walked through this entire two-chapter exercise, these four visions. God exposes our sin to us. God removes our sin from us. God judges all sin with righteousness, and God replaces our sin with holiness. 
So God exposes our sin to us. This is a, the very first vision we talked about was one of judgment unescapable. The scroll was huge. It was visible. It was in everybody's house. It was everywhere they went, at all places, at all times, all-consuming. It will not be stopped. It cannot be avoided. It cannot be bargained with. You can't make a deal with the law. It is judgment. It is unescapable. The law's intent is to show us our dire need for a Savior. This is not me inferring this. These are Paul's words in Romans. The law's purpose is to show you how bad you are and how desperate you are for saving. If somebody doesn't do it, you can't do it. You cannot save yourself. It does convict us. The law convicts us. I want to make that very clear. I have broken God's law. All have broken God's law. All fall short. But Jesus takes that conviction on himself. And this is the difference. In the first vision, what we're seeing is God exposes our sin to us. Once we, become real, once we see the scroll, we realize, oh my gosh, that scroll is going to consume us. It doesn't end there. That's not the only vision. And this is a lifelong endeavor as the law remains. Even though we get convicted of a breach of law, the scroll is there. The law doesn't change. We'll break another and another and another. The whole point of repentance, the whole point of, of changing and becoming a, a better person, a more Christ-like, is that we realize that we are still every day, every hour, minute, second, in need of saving. In need of saving. And to that end, God removes our sin from us. When I say, you know, Christ takes that conviction, we're found guilty, but the sentence that's due us, Christ takes. In this case, what we see is the second vision, God moving the sin away from Israel. He's well aware of the sin. The Israelites know of the sin. They know they're cheating one another. This isn't news to them. Nobody's surprised. I thought the weights were good. No, they knew. They knew what they were doing. <coughs> we see God, God taking it away. Notice the Israelites don't abandon their sin in this story. The Israelites don't just leave it and go away. They will sit there and foster it. They're probably trying to get that lid off of wickedness all day. So God takes it away. The reason? Because we can't do it. Certainly can't do it alone. We will fail every time. I speak from experience. Every time I've tried to really buckle down and conquer sin, I, I end up feeling far worse than when I started that endeavor because it never works, and I feel like I have no willpower. Maybe I'm not even saved. You know, if I can't do this, what good am I? And it's because I can't do it. I cannot do it. Only God can do it, and when he does... When he begins to take our sin away from us, when he begins to lift the basket of wickedness out of our lives and fly it away, even on unclean wings, the world will embrace that sin. Anyone ever tried to do something to improve yourself in a, a godly way? I don't mean just getting fit, but like I'm setting out to stop drinking or cursing or study more, or be a better father or husband or wife or whatever, mother, whatever. And it's unbelievable how once you begin that process, Lord, help me in this regard. I'm going to start trying to take the necessary steps with your help. The people start to appear. And what you're doing is, that's okay. 
You don't need to worry about that. Lots of people drink. Lots of people struggle with that. Lots of people fight with their spouses. Lots of people shove them occasionally. Lots of people hit their kids. Lots of people go out and party on the weekend. I do that. A whole bunch of us do that. It's okay. It's amazing how those, those things start to appear. Seems like they come right out of the woodwork. Well, the reality is what we see in this uh, vision is exactly that. God takes the sin away, and he puts it in Babylon. I'm putting it up there. Don't go there. They build the temple for it. Oh, we love that sin. We think that's really interesting and fun. We think that's freeing. It's who you are. It defines us. It's our identity. I, we, we, we don't see that as negative. We're, we're all for it. And the subtle here, the subtle hint at the end of this is we do well not to pursue our sin. If we pray for God to take something away from us, and he does, don't go into Babylon looking for it. Now, if nobody was here, I could say that in a mirror to myself every day. Stop wandering away from God trying to find where he put your sin. Because guess what? It's not gone. He moved it away and put a heavy lead, lid on top of it. But it's still there. If I want it, I can venture all the way and back into captivity and spend my whole life blooding my fingertips trying to pry that wickedness back out. And church always can tell you that I don't do that, but I do it all the time. I need to knock it off. We need to knock it off. God's taken sin away. Praise God. Now that that's gone, let me get to work. Ah, but what about that sin? Man, I wonder how it's doing. I don't want it. I'll just check on it. Just see if it's still there. Huge mistake. Do not pursue it. God judges all sin with righteousness. The third vision, this is the horses, is judgment of the whole world. So vision one was conviction of sin. Vision two was God's removal of sin. Now vision three is judgment of sin. There is. There's a, a flow to this. Pursuing our sin to the north and south puts us in harm's way. If I go looking for that basket, I don't probably want to be there when the red and the black horse come trucking through. That's no place to be. Now, the interesting thing when we talk about that is the, those that are paying attention will say, well, it won't matter. Because if you're saved, you're saved. So even if I was in the heart of Babylon playing around in my sin when the black horse comes through, it'll swerve me and the white horse will save me. I'm elect. You're right. Do you want to be ankle deep in your own sin when the white horse comes through? Probably not. It's going to be real embarrassing. So don't do it. If you're not sure where you stand, don't go to Babylon looking for your sin. God cannot be mocked and must judge with righteousness. So when we talk about the judgment of the earth, if, if you take a peek at Revelation, everything we see here will be gone. All of it gone. There isn't like a cleaning of the house. It's not like the flood. The earth will be removed in a new heaven, and a new earth will be rebuilt. So all of it will be purged. All of it. Every bit of it. Our desire should be to be found blameless in Christ. We've been convicted of our sin. God has removed our sin. 
when it comes, comes time for God to judge sin, that must happen. There's no way around it. Judgment must occur. But luckily for us, God replaces our sin with holiness. That's the fourth vision. <coughs> the fourth vision is an opulent crown presented to one made worthy by God. Joshua didn't earn this. He didn't take a test. And because he got in a certain percentile, you have been, it's, it's been decided that you have earned priesthood. This crown, this beautiful crown made with the hard work of everybody else is given to him because God said so. God planned all that was necessary for this moment. It's easy to ignore this in the story, but the people that came back from the exile <laughs> and the gold and the silver that they had and the timing for all of this and uh, Joshua being there and being ready with somebody able to make this crown and uh, Zechariah getting the vision, all these pieces all put together by a sovereign God who was ready to go at this time. When it's time, all that's necessary will be there. Well, we're ready to make the crown now, but we have no resources. Then it's not time to make the crown. <laughs> God's first call here is there's four people. Go talk to them. Get the silver and the gold. Get to business. Okay? There's no... Now, if you, if you can find it, Try to make a crown. That's not what's being said here. It's all taken care of. And the corollary is that once we are gods, he begins with a crown of holiness. This entire endeavor starts with God crowning Joshua. The temple is going to be rebuilt. We're going to reconstruct stuff. Step one, God is involved. Then he slowly rebuilds our lives with the help of the church over time. They built a crown right away, and they put it on his head. The temple did not, you know, like a, like a reverse video of a temple being blown up. It wasn't just like, hey, the temple's done. No. Step one, God. Step two, rebuilding. Direct correlation to how our lives begin and how our salvation progresses. Some people have an event where they got rid of massive sin day two. I came to Christ and I quit smoking. I've never touched a cigarette since. And I know that I'm saved because of that. Whew, that's dangerous ground. If that's the reason you're saved, I don't know that you're saved because that's not what does it. I tell you that right now. Lack of sin does not equal salvation. Does it? What we see here is not first rebuild the temple, get that temple looking good, get it all squared away, and then you can have the crown. The, the, the tie-in here to the way that we are saved, the vision, the communication being made from God here is one of comfort. Joshua, here your crown. You're the priest. Now do the work. Faith without works is dead. Now that's not from here. We're going to see that later. But that's exactly what the vision's communicating. Here's your crown. You're good. You're in. Go, be a priest. But the work must now be done. Must now be done. So what about us? First, let us be convicted and then rid of our sin. That first one's a tough one. You know, praying conviction over a congregation of sin, no less, might seem dark, but I'll, I'll do it all day because we can't repent of that of which we are not aware. 
The good news is the law is huge, <laughs> right? The size of that scroll and its vision lets us know that we know. If you know, you know, and you know what's going on in your life. You know the things you wish were different, the things you weren't, uh, that you do that you wish you didn't do. Get convicted of that, and then let's be rid of it. Will it be a miraculous basket flown away? Probably not. It hasn't been for me. Some aspects have been, but others, no. But this notion about, I want it on my mind. I want to be praying for it every day. I want to be, I want to be aware. I don't want there to be sin undiscovered in me. I want to know what's going on. And we know that through that process, God will be faithful and protect us from destruction. <coughs> that doesn't mean you're going to have a, a comfortable life without any tough times. doesn't mean that. But, you would, but when we talk about destruction in the biblical sense, as it were, uh, we don't have to fear that. If you are in Christ, you'll, it's eternity. Now, here on earth, you may die. It might be a gruesome, grisly death for all we know. But it doesn't affect eternity. And when we talk about being convicted and rid of our sin, that's the driving force. These are temporal things, little things that are happening now. We've got a much bigger picture. A huge God to serve and they commune with for all eternity. We know that God will judge the world. That's the third vision, those horsemen. That's exactly what they're there to do. And we must not be indistinguishable from the world. We should stand out. The world should see us as something different. The world will likely hate us because of it. The Bible tells us that. This doesn't mean we become hateful people, warranting that disdain. But we should look different than the world. The world should know something's different over here. I don't know what's driving them, where their joy comes from, how they're not depressed and and why they're not wasting their time like we are. They seem to be on to other things and, and more involved and more meaningful. That should be what we're up to. And to that end, let's work to build ourselves up in holiness with the Spirit's guidance. I want to make it really clear here that there's work for us to be done. This isn't put up your feet and let the Spirit wash you away. In this chapter, in both of these chapters, there's one time where we see the wind carrying them. <laughs> where they didn't have to do anything. And it's women with unclean wings carrying sin into Babylon. That's, that's not what we're supposed to be. We're not called to just put out unclean wings and let the Lord blow us somewhere. We work with the Holy Spirit who changes and convicts us, shows us right and wrong, takes the Word of God and stills it and plants it in our heart, makes us impactful for the people around us. Through that, we can then become more holy, more sanctified every day. But let's not try to do it by ourselves, church. We'll do it with the Spirit's guidance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for these challenging passages. I'm thankful for the conviction that comes from reading a seemingly confusing vision in an isolated area of the book to see that, lo and behold, it's not isolated. It connects to so much richness other places in the Scripture that help us to understand better what's happening here and see that you are steadfast, Lord. You are sovereign. The, the God that you were in the Old Testament is the God that you are today. And that the, the world, as it moves forward, Lord, help us to not lose sight of that. Help us not to see the Old Testament God and these Old Testament visions as something that's antiquated and not relevant, Lord. This matters. It can matter to us today, Lord, and I'm thankful for that. As a church family, Lord, I pray that we will be convicted of our sin. And the Lord, we will be adamant at putting it to death as best we can and that as our sin is put to death and removed from our lives that we don't go in pursuit of it 
and put ourselves and our loved ones in harm's way and undo stress and waste opportunities to do good work chasing down something that is of no value to us, Lord, that is really only death. I'm thankful for the congregation that's here, Lord. I'm thankful for all those that are watching online. And Lord, I pray if anybody doesn't know who you are, doesn't understand how this aligns with what a saving faith in Jesus Christ means, Lord, that they'll reach out to us. There is only one way to heaven. There is only one way that this ever gets fixed, and that is through the work of your son on that cross, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, Lord. He overcame death so that we can enjoy eternal life. And for that, we are thankful beyond words. Senior sons, I pray. Amen.